a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there. I'd like to welcome you to the show and take a quick moment here to say thank you to my many wonderful sponsors. And they include Alta Bank, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College. I also want to give a quick shout out to all of the wonderful listeners who have uh, dug into their own pockets and become monthly donors or sponsors or patrons. I guess there's there's any number of names for uh, how they go about it, but uh, I am so grateful for, for those people who make it possible for me to do what I do. I don't know if you can tell, but, uh, but my heart is fully invested in what I'm doing here uh, because it's, it's not about me, okay? You know, it's kind of cool. I mean, I've got mugs. I've got the little mug here, my coffee mug with the Brian Hyde Show. It's got my logo on it. Even kind of looks like me, which I take as quite a compliment. But ultimately, what I'm trying to do here is not about me. I'm simply trying to speak the truth the best I can, help people find clarity in a world where truth is, is not as easy to find as it once was, but even more important than that, to help people recognize you have greater influence than you think, and it's not hopeless. There's some pretty weird, scary stuff going on. I think we all feel that. You know, you're, you're not imagining things. <laughs> you're not up in the night, but uh, you are far less helpless and far less at the, the you know, whims of fate than, than some people would like you to believe. And that's because this is a message that is based in personal freedom, freedom of conscience, private property rights, the free market. Um, I believe that uh, freedom is the greatest gift that God has given us. And I think the founding generation of America understood that. Even though they were imperfect, even though they didn't get it perfectly, I mean, right, some of them, some of them owned slaves, but generally, they understood there's a higher authority than government itself. And by aligning themselves with, uh, with the natural laws of that higher authority, I think they bequeath to us an incredible amount of freedom, something unprecedented. I don't think there's been anything like it in human history. Unfortunately, it's not a permanent kind of thing. Anybody who wants to be free has to qualify for it. And that means you have got to understand the principles and the practices that are associated with liberty. And if you don't understand those, then uh, like many people before us, that, uh, that freedom will be there, but only for a short time. I like how Dr. Harold Pease likens it to a butterfly that, uh, that lands and stays only in those places where people are very conscientious and where they're self-governing. So that's, that's kind of the basis that I'm coming from. Um, you know, people look for labels. Well, tell me, are you a conservative or are you a progressive? I don't know because I don't really care about the labels. I'm a truth seeker. I'm a problem solver. And, you know, whatever labels help you feel better, you know, to feel like, okay, I got a handle on this Hyde guy. I think, I, I think we figured out who he is or what he's all about. Um, I'm just trying to encourage people that yes, there are things that matter. Yes, there are times where it feels like we're fighting this hopeless uphill battle. But it's still a battle worth fighting. 
And I hope to reinforce that with some of the things that I share with you. For instance, if you had asked me just a few months ago, what is the most precious commodity in the moment? In other words, what what is so rare and so precious? What would you love to have, you know, a, a really nice supply of? I probably would have said toilet paper, you know. Not, not not a year ago, but say 10 months ago, that would have been my answer. Yeah, toilet paper, uh, I don't know, ammo, I, I don't know. But if I had to give that answer today, my answer would be our most precious commodity, the one that seems to be in the shortest supply, that rare gem would be the truth. And I mean especially the truth in regard to the damage done by government-mandated coronavirus policies. You have this incredible array of media sources as well as government sources and influencers and social media. There's, there's this incredible united front that has a narrative that says, look, here's what we have to do and whatever we do is right. And yet uh, there has been some undeniable damage. And I'm so grateful for voices that have been willing to speak up and risk you know, being labeled as heretics. And I I don't mean in the sense of, yeah, somebody will disagree with them. I mean, like, they're, they're called deniers. In an earlier time, they would have been labeled heretics. People would be piling up wood around the bottom of a stake, you know, preparing for a burning at the stake a little bit later on tonight. So Dr. Scott Atlas has been one of those voices. And he asks a very relevant question. This is an article from uh, Real clear politics and the title is will the truth prevail or rather will the truth on covid restrictions really prevail and i think i have to give some credibility here to to scott atlas not because you know i'm a medical doctor and i understand exactly you know what he's talking about here um it's more a matter of i give some credibility to dr scott atlas because this is a guy who has skin in the game this is a guy who has suffered for his beliefs. And I think uh, that makes him worth at least, you know, at least considering what he has to say. I don't know. Does that make sense? If somebody's willing to, to really, you know, take the, take the hits for speaking truth, especially unpopular truth, my, uh, my instinct is to say, okay, I want to know what they know. As opposed to, well, people disagree, therefore they must be wrong. So he says the consequences of the SARS-2 coronavirus pandemic and its management have been enormous. Over 400,000 American deaths have been attributed to the virus. More will certainly follow. But he says even after almost a year, the pandemic still paralyzes our country. And despite all efforts, there's been an undeniable failure to stop cases from rapidly escalating and preventing hospitalizations and death. Now, he says, here is the reality. Almost all states and major cities, with a handful of exceptions, have implemented severe restrictions for many months, including closures of businesses and in-person school, uh, mobility restrictions and curfews, quarantines, limits on group gatherings, mask mandates dating back at least to the summer. And he says, these measures did not significantly change the typical pattern or damage from the SARS-2 virus. In fact, President Biden openly admitted as much in his speech to the nation on January 22nd. He said there is nothing we can do to change the trajectory of the pandemic in the next several months. So instead of rethinking the results of implemented policies, many in power want to blame those who opposed lockdowns and mandates for the failure of those very lockdowns and mandates that were widely implemented. 
Now, Dr. Scott Atlas says, ironically, all new policies will coincide with a decrease in cases because that decrease is already evident across the United States. Hospitalizations in every age group by CDC data as well as deaths have begun to decline. Confirming that trend is the marked drop in symptomatic COVID-19 patients coming to emergency rooms, down 40% from its peak almost a month ago to become lower than that seen before Thanksgiving. Now, despite that reality, he asks, is there any doubt how most of the American media will portray this in their analysis of the administration's first 100 days? Yeah, I can only imagine. And he says, let's be clear about this behavior. Social mobility tracking of Americans and data from Gallup, YouGov, and COVID-19 Consortium and the CDC have shown significant reductions of movement as well as a consistently high percentage of mask wearing since the late summer, similar to Western European countries and approaching that in Asia. Now, he says, here in America, we actually have an internal comparison. Florida, a large, diverse, highly populated state, stands out as having one of the highest percentages of vulnerable elderly in the entire nation, one of only two states with more than 20% over 65 years of age. Florida widely opened schools and businesses months ago, discarded most mobility restrictions, and ended mandates. Now, they didn't eliminate cases, hospitalizations, or deaths, but Florida outperformed many states during the recent surge including those with warm climates like California that implemented long-standing lockdowns. Florida's deaths per capita has also beaten half the country as well as the national average. So even if Floridians on their own behaved similarly to people under mandates, he says, why is that not a subject of open discussion and highlighted by the media? Now we're coming up on the break here, so I'm going to have to come back to this in a few moments. But I'm going to have a link to Dr. Scott Atlas's article. And I'm going to encourage you, check this out for yourself. Seriously, just, you know, consider it. You don't have to believe, my goodness, this is the gospel truth. It may as well have been written on tablets of stone and carried down Mount Sinai by Moses himself. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying what he's pointing out makes a lot of sense. And yet... There's a very clear effort on the part of the narrative managers, be it the mass media, the politicians, the bureaucrats, or just the people who really believe this is going to kill us all, to look the other way. So maybe you're getting some of that precious commodity of truth that others are missing out on. Be greedy. (laughs) Hoard it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I do want to mention that uh, our program is brought to you in part today by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. And I also, I have to apologize, I gave my friend Steve Burgess a battlefield promotion the other day. I think I called him the founder (laughs) and owner of Landmark. He is actually the CEO of the agency. So, Steve, I was was actually going to elevate you one step further. I was going to start calling you the Grand Poobah. But uh, I think I think that uh, maybe I'll just stick with the uh, CEO. Th- this is the thing I want you to understand. As a business owner, there's no doubt you wear a whole bunch of different hats, and uh, being the insurance expert happens to be one of them. The problem is most people really aren't insurance experts, and this is where Landmark comes in. Insurance salesman, you know, brings up images of uh, Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. Remember the movie? Trying to sell you just one more life insurance policy 
But when it comes to business insurance, you need someone who can actually be a trusted advisor, help you manage the risk to the business that you are working so hard to build. This is where uh, I think you will find Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, uh, a very, very helpful team and agency, very committed to making sure that you have everything covered that you need. You'll find the contact information at the bottom of the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Again, these are the show notes for January 28th. All right, I was sharing an article, and we'll continue to share this article from Dr. Scott Atlas. That's a name that uh, causes booing and hissing in some circles, primarily in the circles of lockdowners. Oh, man, there's some hatred for this guy. I think he has been uh, banned from a number of uh, social media platforms and otherwise you know, accused of being everything but a child of God. And yet he has this, ar- this article on real clear politics. Will the truth on COVID restrictions really prevail? And I think he makes a pretty good case here that what we're being told versus what has actually panned out don't exactly match up. All these restrictions that were put in place, you know, all the, all the things we were told were, were going to, um, you know, protect us turned out to, to be, shall we say, a little less than what was promised. And there was a lot of collateral damage in the meantime. Scott Atlas says, separate from their limited value in containing the virus, efficacy that's been grossly exaggerated in published papers, he says lockdown policies have been extraordinarily harmful. The harms to children of closing in-person schooling are dramatic. They include things like poor learning, high school drop or school dropouts rather, social isolation, suicidal ideation, most of which are far worse for lower income groups. A recent study confirms up to 78% of cancers were never detected due to missed screenings over three months. Now, if one extrapolates that to the entire country, now he was talking just about Florida in this case, but if you extrapolate that to the entire country, where about 150,000 new cancers are diagnosed each month, three-fourths to over a million new cases over nine months will have gone undetected. And the health disaster adds to critical missed surgeries, uh, delayed presentations of pediatric illnesses, heart attack and stroke patients, too afraid to call emergency services, and others all well documented. Now, Dr. Atlas says beyond hospital care, the CDC reported fourfold increases in depression, threefold increases in anxiety symptoms, and a doubling of suicidal ideation, especially among young adults after the first few months of lockdowns echoing the AMA reports of drug overdoses and suicides. Domestic abuse and child abuse have been skyrocketing due to the isolation, specifically to the loss of jobs, and particularly in the strictest lockdowns. And given that many in-person schools have been closed, hundreds of thousands of abuse cases are never reported, since schools are the number one agency where abuse is noted. Finally, he says, the unemployment shock from lockdowns, according to a new NBER study, will generate a 3% increase in mortality rate and a 0.5% drop in life expectancy over the next 15 years, disproportionately affecting African Americans and women. That translates into what they call a staggering 890,000 additional U.S. deaths, not from COVID, but from the lockdowns. Now, by the way, he has, a li- he has links in this article to every one of these things he's talking about. This is not just him, you know, pontificating and pulling numbers or pulling, you know, ideas, you know, out of his sleeve. 
Dr. Scott Atlas says, we know we have not yet seen the full extent of the damage from lockdowns because it will last for decades. Maybe that's why lockdowns were not recommended in previous pandemic analyses, even for infections with far higher death rates. So to determine the best path forward, he asks, shouldn't policymakers objectively consider both the data and the totality of impacts of, of these policies to date? That's the importance of health policy experts with a broader scope of expertise than that of epidemiologists and basic scientists. That necessarily means admitting that social lockdowns and significant restrictions on individuals are deadly and extraordinarily harmful, especially on the working class and poor. Now, he says, optimistically, we're seeing the light at the end of the long tunnel with the rollout of vaccines now at 1.5 million per day. On the other hand, using logic that would put Alice in Wonderland's Mad Hatter to shame, the new vaccines have frequently been administered first to healthier, younger people instead of those at risk to die. Few states at the time of this writing have administered most of their vaccinations to people over 65. Many have given more than 80% to low-risk age groups. And why is the fact that tens of millions already have biological protection after being infected with the virus? So they should not be immediate priorities, not even acknowledged. He says, just as in Galileo's time, another problem is the vested academic interests. Many universities have overtly intimidated views contrary to their own, seemingly for political motives, leaving many people afraid to speak up. Perhaps university mottos like Harvard's truth, Stanford's uh, the winds of freedom blow, and Yale's light and truth need revision. Social media has piled on with a heavy hand to eliminate discussion of conflicting evidence without permitting, indeed encouraging, open debate and admission of errors he says we might never solve any future crisis. America is now a country where differing interpretations of science in order to seek the truth is the new anathema. And Scott Atlas says, I fear that the science has been seriously damaged and many have simply become fatigued by the arguments. That's even worse because fatigue will allow fallacy to triumph over truth. Perhaps Harvard Medical School professor Martin Koldorf was correct when he lamented, after 300 years, the age of enlightenment has ended. Okay, again, this is an article from Dr. Scott Atlas, published on Real Clear Politics, and I just, I have watched him since, uh, well, since I, I first saw him arrive on the scene in terms of, I, I think, uh, I, I want to say the American Institute for Economic Research may have been one of the ones who, who really first introduced me to Dr. Scott Atlas. And again, I don't know that he is 100% right, but I'm glad he's asking the questions that he is. I'm grateful he's presenting the point of view that he is. I think there needs to be that uh, that well-rounded approach where we're looking at this from as many angles as possible. But it's really clear that, uh, you know, again, within social media, within uh, the mainstream media, and certainly within the politicized circles, that there's this official narrative. And if you stray from that narrative, wow. You know, they are... They are quick to excommunicate you from polite society and to smear you and to question you. And I don't know if it's fear. I don't know if it's, you know, a, a lust for power that drives this or just some people can't stand the prospect of being wrong. Or maybe, just maybe, some of the people who initially embraced these lockdown policies out of a sense of, well, we have to do something and, you know, fearful that if we don't do something, you know, we're, we're all going to die or at least this is going to be so much worse. 
maybe they're starting to recognize some of the damage that has been done because of these policies, and they don't want to be held accountable for it. I guess I can understand, you know, there's, it would, it would be a pretty heavy burden to think, okay, how many hundreds of thousands of businesses have been destroyed? How many lives have been destroyed? How many people have chosen to take their life because they just couldn't go on being isolated? Let's, uh, let's just, let's have more free speech, more access to what may be the truth, and let's you and I sort it out as best we can. I don't need an expert. I really don't. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Since I'm reveling in wrong think, I guess I'll just go ahead and go for broke here. So uh, I shared this article from Scott Atlas. It's in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. One of the things that I see, one of the bright sides that I see about questioning the official lockdown narrative is that it gets a little bit easier every time we see hypocritical politicians violating their own coronavirus restrictions. And there's a great example of this. Actually, it's a terrific uh, story by John Stossel. This uh, landed in my email inbox uh, overnight, courtesy of everythingvoluntary.com. If you haven't subscribed, maybe you should consider doing that. They really have some great material. Uh, John Stossel says, after Joe Biden's inauguration, he ordered everyone on federal lands to wear a mask. And that night, he and his family posed for pictures at the Lincoln Memorial, none of them wearing a mask. California Governor Gavin Newsom told California that it's essential to avoid mixing with people outside of your household. And then he had dinner with lots of people outside his household without masks. Now, there's a link to the video that, uh, that John Stossel's done. He, he does go on, though, to say Newsom did apologize for attending a friend's birthday party. Uh, maybe you heard about that. But you might not know that the restaurant charges $800 for dinners or that the government's friend is a lobbyist, a politically connected fixer who helps select Hollywood businesses get exemptions from government shutdowns. Isn't that special? (laughs) Restaurant owner Angela Marsden, uh, instead of hiring an expensive lobbyist, spent her money building an outdoor patio that complied with COVID-19 regulations. But then the state shut down even outdoor dining. And in a viral video, she cried, I'm losing everything. But the business right next door wasn't shut down. NBC's TV show Good Girls was allowed to set up a dining area right outside her restaurant. She doesn't have a powerful team of lobbyists to argue on her behalf in the state's capital, points out Jarrett Stepman, a reporter who covers politicians' hypocrisy for the Daily Signal. California gives him plenty of fodder. San Francisco Mayor London Breed went to a party at that fancy restaurant, too. Then, of course, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi got her hair done when California salons were closed. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves held three Christmas parties, violating his executive order, limiting the number of people at gatherings. And when a reporter asked, how is that not in conflict with the order? Reeves responded that his party sent a message to the people of Mississippi that you can return to a life that is somewhat normal. Yeah, but the people can't, says John Stossel. Only politicians get to do that. Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo attended a wine and paint event 
just days after tweeting, stay home except for essential activities and wear a mask. Even after a photo showed her at the event, Biden nominated Raimondo to be Secretary of Commerce. Instead of being booted out, they get a promotion, complained Stepman. Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser ordered a 14-day quarantine for anyone going to several states, including Delaware, for non-essential activity. And then she went to Delaware for a Biden victory celebration, something that strikes John Stossel as about as non-essential as it gets. Her arrogant defense? I do a lot of things to advance the interests of the District of Columbia. All of them are necessary. (laughs) Shut up, little people. (laughs) If politicians do it, says John Stossel, it's always necessary. Rules are for the little people. In Chicago, after politicians ordered salons closed, Mayor Lori Lightfoot still went to one for a haircut and defended her decision, saying, I'm out in the public eye. I take my personal hygiene very seriously. Now, Stepman says Lightfoot is a double hypocrite because she was seen attending election day parties and giant street festivals not wearing a mask. Now, believe it or not, the Heritage Foundation tracks such political hypocrisy, calling it COVID hypocrisy. And John Stossel says, as I write, they are up to 57 examples of rules for thee, but not for me. Jarrett Stepman concludes, it's up to us to say you're either going to follow these rules, change these rules, or we're going to throw you out. Throwing out these hypocrites, says John Stossel, would be a great start. I don't know, you know, I'm, look, I'm not looking for a reason to get angry. I'm not looking for a reason to raise my blood pressure, but that really does bug me. It, it, it frustrates me that there are politicians who, who, who think we wouldn't notice The funny thing, though, is if you start talking about, well, you need to throw these bums out. Oh, the Homeland Security? I think we have some domestic terrorists uh, here. And, and you know, okay, I'll just say it. Dissent is rapidly being outlawed. Or at least there, there are policies being proposed that would make it criminal to dissent from those in authority. So if you think that the lockdowns have been destructive or have left a bad taste in your mouth... Just wait until, you know, the the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act of 2021 is rammed through Congress and you find that anyone who questions the official narrative is now placed under official suspicion. Now, some may ask, okay, so what do we do to reverse this trend? And and my, my short answer is, I don't think you can reverse this trend. I think the best thing that you can do at this point is to carefully... And methodically, day by day, remove yourself from as much government power as possible. There are a lot of different ideas, a lot of different ways to do it. But I think the first thing you got to do is make a decision. Learn how to solve those problems at the local level. If it means uh, learn how to barter with your neighbors, learn how to solve each other's problems and help each other out. But I think that's, that's a line of thinking that more of us are going to have to become uh, familiar with and be courageous enough to pursue. Now, that's going to make you a radical to some people. And for some, the idea of being labeled, well, I, you know, I don't want to be thought of as some extremist, but that's the purpose of those labels, is to get you so fearful that, well, I, I wouldn't even think of, of edging in that direction. Which, which brings up the question, why should you care what other people think? Kent McManigal has a great essay. This too came to me from everythingvoluntary.com. He says, care what some people think, but not what everyone thinks. 
Kent says, part of exercising your liberty comes down to not caring what everybody else thinks. Hopefully, he says, you're able to do this in a way that doesn't come off as rude to observers, but sometimes it's not possible. Now, he says, you should care what some people think. It's probably not healthy to not care what anyone thinks. You'd be a psychopath or something if that were the case. But most people out there really aren't worth coddling. He says, these people will try to bully you into doing or saying what they want. It's probably going to seem rude to them when you refuse, but how would it feel to you if you caved in? How would it look to others who see you comply with something you and they know isn't right? Which is worse. He says, I usually try to find a way to refuse to go along that isn't confrontational. Often I simply ignore them. They just aren't worth the effort. But sometimes you're not left with that option. Sometimes to refuse is to be confrontational. In that case, he says, it helps if you don't get too wrapped up in the opinions of those who are trying to bully you. He says, if I care too much about what others think when they do not have my best interests at heart, my liberty would be destroyed. One person at a time, they'll destroy everyone's liberty. So he says, don't let them. Stop them at your liberty and stop them if you see them targeting someone else. Refusing to be bullied is not the same as imposing your will on them. I think this is really sound advice. And, and I'm going to take it away from, you know, simply the, the political realm or the, you know, COVID restrictions realm. I think when it comes to, to living a happier, more productive life, that is one of the hardest things for people to let go of is, is how do others see me? And yet when you get to the point where you can honestly say, I'm okay with being misunderstood or I'm okay with people um, totally having the wrong impression of me, it's incredibly liberating. Yeah, it, it hurts at first. The first time somebody tells you that you're a piece of crud, you know, right to your face, and you think, this person doesn't even know me. And they disagree with me on something, but because of that, I'm a piece of crud to them. Yeah, it stings. And I wish it weren't so, but, but that's how it is. But when you have paid the price to know who you are, when you've paid the price to, to own your worldview, in other words, to, to, to own your understanding of what, whatever your understanding is at that moment, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. You don't need the approval of people who wouldn't give it to you even if, even if you want it. So stop worrying about it. Now, I would add to, to what Kent McManagle has said here. There are people whose opinions I value. And, and if, there's, if there's a dividing line between the opinions about me that I value and those that I don't, it would be, is there respect? Do I have respect for this person? If somebody I respect tells me, Brian, this is something that I feel like I need to point out to you, I promise you, I will listen to them because of that respect. On the other hand, if it's just a critic, you know, trying to score a hit, ha, gotcha, you know, I, I, I found the best response is uh, nothing. They're looking for a response. They're looking for somebody to to get angry or to otherwise show a reaction. You deny them the reaction, and they just kind of fizzle and go out (laughs) like a wet fuse. And that's okay. You got to be okay with yourself. And you will find freedom in not caring what most people think about you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Our program brought to you in part today by Alta Bank. That would be my friend John Staples. And for my listeners within the sound of my voice in the state of Utah, John is a mortgage lender. And I mean a top-notch mortgage lender. If you want to contact him at Alta Bank, he can get things going for you. And I mean quickly, which is probably a good idea because the interest rates are still ridiculously low right now. So if you're looking for a new home loan, you're looking to refinance an existing home loan, talk to my friend John Staples at Alta Bank. And you can find the contact information right at the bottom of the show notes. These are the show notes for January 28th at thebrianhydeshow.com. Okay, I say the word totalitarianism a lot more than I would like to. And I worry a little bit sometimes that, oh, that's going to scare people. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely a scary word. But I think most people, if they're honest with themselves, have a pretty strong sense that right now our society is moving away from freedom and toward totalitarianism. You know, you'll get some argument as to, but are we there yet? <laughs> I don't think we're quite there yet. But uh, we, we do seem to be picking up speed in the direction that we're going. And, and clearly, it's not a direction towards greater liberty. So how can you be sure that what you're dealing with is totalitarianism? And for that matter, what can you do about it? Well, with answers to these kind of questions, I turn to Annie Holmquist, who is the editor of intellectualtakeout.org. I love Annie's writing because she is... Uh, She's very well grounded in in a lot of uh, classic literature. She obviously reads a lot, and she finds some just remarkable gems. And I think she has in this case as well. So when she says, what to expect when you're expecting totalitarianism, here's her advice. She says, the political jargon and posturing one hears these days seems to suggest that we are in an era unlike any that has ever occurred before. Hope springs anew. There is light at the end of the tunnel, politicians gush. And for those of our elites who really want to impress with their knowledge of history, a reference to Abraham Lincoln fits the bill nicely. We're seeing a new birth of freedom. She says, I'd agree that something is certainly in the process of being birthed, but I'd be hard-pressed to call that baby freedom. Some would even say this baby better bears the opposing name of totalitarianism. But she says, before we throw labels around, it's helpful to know what we mean by such terms. What does totalitarianism look like? And to this, she turns to the 1953 classic, The Quest for Community, from Robert Nisbet. Here are some of his observations. Number one, politics is everything. In the totalitarian order, the political tie becomes the all-in-all, Nisbet explains. Gone is the importance of the individual. Instead, individuals become cogs in the machine of a centralized government. This situation creates a psychological setting that alone makes possible the massive remaking of the human consciousness. Number two, hiding behind a front of democracy. Totalitarian government, Nisbet infers, does not wish to appear as the controlling centralized power that it is. Instead, the power of the government must seem to proceed from the basic will of the people. Thus, when authoritarian laws are passed, they will be framed as necessary for the preservation of democracy, even when it can be clearly seen that nothing could be further from the truth. Doing so enables the government to bend, soften, and corrode the will to resistance in preference to forcible and brutal breaking of the will. Number three, diversity is abolished. Now, diversity is a pet issue for many in government and culture today. Yet what people fail to realize is that under totalitarian rule, the natural diversity of society is swept away. 
In its place comes militaristic conformity to the party line in art and in politics, in science and economy. Totalitarian government, it seems, is cancel culture on steroids. Number four, new replaces old. Perhaps one of the most prominent features of a totalitarian regime is its quest to replace the old with the new. The past becomes synonymous with the bad, and everything is redefined. History, art, science, and morality, rather. All these must be redesigned, placed in a new context, in order to make of a power a seamless web of certainty and conformity. The replacement of the new with the old is necessary because, as Nisbet explains, totalitarianism is an ideology of nihilism. But nihilism is not enough. Thus, while totalitarianism must remove the old in order for its new ideology to function, it also recognizes that something must fill the void left by the loss of faith and community. So to this end, it attempts to implement a larger group effort which points back to the political and offers allegiance to the state. Now the question remains as to whether we've seen these traits play out in our society of late. So let's go down the list. Is politics everything these days? Certainly seems like it. One almost has to become a Luddite in order to get away from hearing political conversation. Even when one is not bombarded with politics on the news, political jargon somehow manages to creep into our private lives at work, in conversations, and even our entertainment options. By the way, just as a quick aside, I saw a friend who is a reporter for a a local news source in southern Utah. Um, He just noted on Facebook yesterday, he said, I had to take a break. It was my day off, and so I took a break from reporting, took a break from social media, just took a break, went completely offline because I felt like my head is about to explode with all the stuff that's going on. And the remark he made was he said, it's crazy how good it felt, even for just a few hours, to step away from all of that focus on everything political. I thought that was, I thought that was worth mentioning. He felt the results within hours. So if you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed, by all means, do. Step away. Even unplug yourself from this show if you need to. I do my best not to, not to add to your fears or add to your total burden, but, uh, but if you find that's the case, go ahead, step away. I promise I'll, I'll, I'll try to do better. I'm, <laughs> I'm not always going to get it right. But, uh, but if you need the break, take the break. Give, you, give your brain time to heal and your heart some time to heal. How about this? The second thing on the list, democracy or diversity. Annie Holmquist says those terms are certainly thrown around a lot these days, but whether or not we're seeing democracy in action or experiencing true diversity of thought, well, that's up for debate in an era where genuine censorship is happening before our eyes. And finally, where is the old being whitewashed by the new? Well, you don't have to look far. Toppled statues abound. The 1619 Project exemplifies attempts to change and undermine the historical narrative. Younger generations now accept sexual immorality as normal. Even science seems to drift along with the political winds. Annie Holmquist says, If we are indeed now experiencing totalitarian government more than ever, how can we keep ourselves from being sucked into the vortex, simply becoming another mindless cog in the totalitarian machine? Well, she says, The simple answer seems to be to swim upstream and foster those things which totalitarian government is against. I feel like I want to applaud what she just wrote here because that rings so true to me. If totalitarianism wants us to erase our memories of history, community, morality, and faith, then she says we must cling tightly to those very things. 
And this memory muscle can be strengthened by reading good books, studying history, and discussing the gleanings from these sources with others. Regularly attending church, getting involved with the community there, and inviting that community into your home for fellowship will also increase that anti-totalitarian muscle. She says, and last but not least, embracing family and expending energy to, mo- to model good morals and behavior to your children will not only be helpful for the current fight against totalitarianism, but for future battles as well. Nisbet said, totalitarianism is an affair of mass attitudes. Any Holmquist advice is don't run with the crowd. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. I, I don't know why. Um, I love what Annie writes, and, and, I, and most every time I see a new essay from hers, I always try to check it out. This one really resonated with me. This one, um, this one lifted my heart. So you'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Think about what it means to not run with the crowd. I mean, look, I, I've lived as a herd animal before. There's times when, when I found it safer to simply, you know, you know, stay within the crowd. Don't draw attention to yourself. Don't be the nail that sticks up. But I think if you're serious about maintaining what is left of your freedoms, or more importantly, if you are serious about maintaining freedoms to be able to hand off to the generations that follow us, you're going to have to be comfortable with not standing with or running with the crowd. And that takes some practice. It takes a little time to build up the calluses because as soon as you are seen to be out of step with what everybody else is doing, I don't know what it is, but there's there's like a, a cultural need to bring you back into line, buddy. And so people think it's their duty to punish you, to, to you know, to bring you uh, down low, <laughs> to make sure you know you are not doing what everybody expects of you. Which brings us back to the idea of uh, why should I care what everybody expects of me? This is where I think uh, knowing who you are, knowing what you stand for, maybe tightening up that relationship with your creator seem like pretty solid ways to, uh, you know, fortify yourself against uh, groupthink. Yeah, you got to be willing to embrace and revel in wrongthink. Thanks again for joining us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.